Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. And wait, and this ticker on the side, the chat, like they can ask questions and stuff like that? Is that yeah. I'm really tech. Yeah, we got we got people in the Zoom room who can ask questions and then there'll also be people watching on YouTube and uh, they can ask questions, too. But I'm not paying as much attention to them. Uh, I tend to just focus on the people who uh, took the time to join us in the Zoom room. So, uh, all right. We are now live. Uh, I am here with Anna Hashian. I'll give my best attempt at the butchered. uh, Yeah, I really don't. I really don't care how people pronounce my name because I don't know how to pronounce it even. (laughs) <laughs> nice. Like well, this is like an Armenian name that's been russified that then has been anglicized. You know, your good your guess is as good as mine. Cool. Well, happy to happy to give my best effort and uh welcome everybody. Thank you for coming out as always. If you're here for the first time, as you might be here just to listen to Anna, we this is my podcast. It's called Other Life. I pretty much just do whatever I want. I would say it's probably the most galaxy-brained podcast on the internet is how I often describe it. Um, we are going to be talking about many things today. Um, I'm very happy to be talking with Anna. Uh, Anna has been on my radar for quite some time. Uh, we're often mentioned together and she's been a highly requested guest. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk with Anna. Uh, Anna, first of all, I already thanked you before, but in front of everyone, I should thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So I received a ton of questions from people on Twitter and Instagram. So, and I also have some questions of my own. So if it's okay. cool with you, we're just going to go through some of them. Yeah. Why not? All right. Awesome. Roll that so, beautiful bean footage. <laughs> what's that? Roll that beautiful bean footage. Do you guys <laughs> want to meet? Does everybody want to meet the cat? Sure. Wait, I'll sure. show you the cat. Cause she's so cute. Good start. That's sister, my cat. What's, her, what's the name? Sister. Sister. Right yeah, on. This is my cat. She's a Siamese pound animal or like street rescue that I found on the street in bed She has blue eyes and she's like a very fine specimen and she's behaving really well right now. Cute. And I you're in your, to, you're in your flat her. in New York city. I imagine. Yes. It's, it's not my flat. It's my, uh, BFs, my COVID husband's flat. Okay, cool. So you guys don't live together? You just kind of live there sometimes? We do now what? because of this quarantine, yeah. Oh, I see. So that we was actually going to be my, my first question. Yeah, go ahead. yeah. What's your life like? In the, how's the pandemic lockdown going for you, first of all? And what's, what's your everyday life like in New York City? I mean, my everyday life is essentially uh, procrastinating and kicking the can down the road. <laughs> uh, in terms of like writing a book proposal and being like a serious writer so i like do the podcast but ordinarily i just invent a bunch of like tedious and fake errands for myself 
So the quarantine has been good because I've actually been forced to like hunker down and write a lot. I'm like naturally very much an incel and like a recluse. So staying indoors has never been, you know, a problem for me. I'm like my mother, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, essentially. Fair enough. Yeah, I've kind of been the same, honestly. I can I can relate to that. So okay, so you're in Manhattan, you're trying to work on your book proposal. Uh at, at some at some rate anyway and what is yeah. the book uh, what is the book proposal about tell us a little bit about it will you well you know originally it was supposed to be about feminism and how feminism has failed women and sold them a bill of lies essentially but now i think i have to do something totally different because of this whole situation going on nobody cares about feminism it's been like thoroughly debunked so i think i'm either going to write some fiction or uh do some sort of like uh, update Christopher Lash or something for the modern era. You know, that's really funny you say that because I had a, I was working on a book proposal for a whole year. It was a kind of serious uh, kind of typical kind of New York city uh, yeah. pu- like literary agent type book proposal that I was working on for a whole year. And it was pretty much about the political psychology of social justice warriors. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is exactly the same as yours. Like it's like, now it's over now. It's like every it's, it's so kind of like visibly and uh, kind of intelligibly bankrupt that it's like, there's not even really a, a book to write about it. I think I do have some, some ideas still, but my feeling is the same as yours. It's like over now. I think this is a bad thing in, in the short run in terms of the fact that all of our ideas have been uh, kind of immediately like dried up and, and proven obsolete, but in the long run, it's a good thing because it really like unlocks you from, it, it frees you from this like prison of ideology or whatever. Yeah. And you're essentially free to do whatever you want. Like I had, I have a friend who was like struggling to write an article after another previous viral article. And she asked me like, what should I write next? And I said, like, write something that people like won't expect, write something for the New York times about, you know, the ballet or the opera really like (laughs) piss people off, but also do what you want. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. That's always a good maxim. Now, when when you do the podcast with Dasha, do you do it online or do you meet somewhere? Do you meet at her place or your place or what do you guys do? Well, we used to meet at my place and then now we've been doing it remotely. Oh, I see. So do yeah. you not see anyone other than your boyfriend? I mean, no, I would be lying. I've been breaking quarantine like clandestinely for the last few weeks. Do you wear a mask? Yeah, of course. Good. Well, you say, of course, but sometimes I don't. I think for, I don't know, it feels, it just feels kind of gay. (laughs) No, it's totally gay and it's cucked. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't wear a mask if I'm like walking down the street and it's relatively empty. Of course I wear the mask, you know, as protocol in all the stores and stuff like that. Um, I've never gotten reprimanded for it. I suspect it's because I'm so tiny. I'm like very short and very slim. So people just don't notice me on the street. And like, it sort of like reminds me of being a teenager in New Jersey and being like a kind of like career shoplifter. I stole so much crap when I was a kid and never got caught because they just didn't notice me. I was like small, thin, white. Right. It was like a perfect storm. So you grew up in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? Um, In South Brunswick. Originally Highland Park. But you're a Jersey boy too. Yeah. Wait. What did you say? What did you say? South where? South Brunswick. South Brunswick. Yeah. I grew mm-hmm. up in uh, Monmouth County in uh, a little little town called Ocean Township. <laughs> okay. I know. I know. Like where that's. You know, like Asbury Park. Yeah. 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 Totally. yeah that's funny. I actually didn't know that that you grew up in in New Jersey. 
interesting. So we have many things in common, I guess. And you were originally going to, you were going to do a PhD at one point. Was that at Rutgers? No. So I did my undergrad at Rutgers because my dad was a professor there. So it was like tuition remission. Nice. My dad was a very uh, kind of like wise immigrant man, very frugal. And he said, you will not go to any good college with high tuition. You go here. And I was like, dad, fuck you. I want to go to a shitty low tier Ivy league. And he really like prevented me from doing it. And that was like the best uh, bit of parenting that this man ever did. So I went, ended up going to um, this, to Rutgers for my undergrad, which was in economics. And then I went to uh, NYU. I applied after a year of doing jack shit. It was like frittering away. And I kind of on a whim applied to the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU they let me in with a stipend. Right on. And and what was your project going to be about? What was your what was your PhD dissertation going to ultimately be about in your mind? Um, so I think part of my disappointment was like originally I started I started studying kind of like um, Silver Age portraiture in in uh, Russia before the communist revolution. So I was looking at the work of this guy, Valentin Serov, who everybody should Google immediately, S-E-R-O-V. Um, I think he was the premier portraitist of his time. And he did primarily portraits of the aristocracy and the nouveau riche. So mm-hmm. he was a John Singer Sargent-like figure. And, and they're comparable in many ways. So that was what my undergrad thesis, I had a, a double major in undergrad and I had an art history um, like second major. And I did this thesis on John Singer Sargent and Valentin Sarov as kind of counterpoised figures in Russia and the United States. And I was really interested in the silver age and um, ended up getting steered out of that into architecture. So it was primarily like constructivist architecture, uh, Soviet architecture. And I'm, I think what really soured me on the experience is that I was interested in studying Stalinist architecture and was dissuaded from that because people were really jazzed up about the kind of constructivist era. Mm. And so kind of, yeah, I dip, I kind of backed out of everything. Interesting. Well, you're a very interesting case in this regard because in some ways it's almost as if you leaving your PhD program actually allowed you to almost fast forward in terms of influence and having a platform for actually doing your own independent intellectual work. Is that kind of how you see it? How it played out on some level? Yeah. I, I was able, I guess, let's say for better or for worse, um, take the aspects of art history that I was interested in and kind of extract them from the study of art history at large and focus on them exclusively, primarily, whatever. Uh, I don't know that that's a good thing because in some sense I've lost touch with like the actual uh, research, which is bad. Mm. You know, I've become one of these uh, social media adult millennials, which is not good for anybody. Right. But with the platform that you've built for yourself since you left your PhD, you could, if you decided to, you could embark on a year long deep study of academic art history and write a book in art history if you wanted to and and probably yeah, yeah. probably do as well with that book as you would have done if you did a PhD. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's yeah. a bunch of, I think there's a lot of people like our age who are now essentially uh, kind of like 
vagabonds, like academic vagabonds who, who left academia and are doing like quasi-academic work independently. Right. Am I too... Am I too far from the mic? Should I should I hold it up closer? Closer would Somebody's probably be better. Okay. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's all good though. Um, yeah, I'm right. Anxious. I think there are there are a lot of these types of people, and frankly, I think there's a lot of these types of people in, in my audience for for my podcast actually, so, which is why I think this is an interesting topic for us to discuss. There are a lot of people who are yeah adjuncting or doing this kind of academic grind, uh, kind of at yeah. the at the most at the bottommost tiers of kind of the academic hierarchy, just trying to trying to stay afloat, but it's this like really exhausting grind. It often doesn't pay very well. Whereas, you know, I look at someone like you, Anna, and I'm like, you know, if you're a PhD student and your real goal is just to have intellectual freedom and to develop your thoughts over time with an impactful platform, I, I'm, I'm increasingly of the opinion, I would love to know if you agree with this, Anna, that if, if your real goals are essentially pursuing an independent intellectual project of some kind, you want to be a full-time intellectual, I actually think you have better chances of building a platform through something like a podcast than getting a PhD and trying to become a professor just because there's so few uh, places, there's so few seats for becoming a professor, whereas there are actually a lot of podcasts that are doing quite well. What do you think about that? I mean, I absolutely agree. I think the problem is, I don't know if this is a problem, this is probably a good thing, Um People now, th these riots are happening. People are saying, oh, burn it all down. Uh, that's probably a problematic thing to say in that context, but it certainly does apply to the institutional structure. Uh, all of our institutions have failed us higher education, the media, uh, politics, finance, everything. And there, increasingly, the people that count the most are people who are independent. I mean, Joe Rogan, no longer independent, right? But remember the whole Bernie melee when he endorsed bernie and, and everybody freaked out and uh, the new york times did you know a bogo like buy one get one klobuchar warren endorsement uh that was completely fraudulent and pathetic and everybody laughed at them and it's like you know at the end of the day joe rogan's endorsement means way more than the new york times right like i imagine people who were in your phd cohort <laughs> uh and they're like comparing themselves to you and they're kind of like, oh, shit, I should have dropped out and started a podcast. <laughs> I don't think anybody. Well, I don't even know if they I don't think anybody remembers me. I'm such a like I you know, you could pull people from my high school or from my college or from my grad program. I don't think anybody would remember me because I was so shy and quiet and unassuming. Interesting. So yeah. so you haven't always been the kind of boisterous uh, speaker that you are now. And I mean, I ran I remember being in grad school. I ran into trouble when I was trying to um, kind of defend uh, the uh, pro the process of going on to the PhD because there was like an automatic five-year. I was so I was in a five-year program, but there was um, after the master's, right? There was a, a point where you had to defend in front of a committee of three people. And I remember two of them uh, passed me kind of immediately. And the other one said, you know, don't pass her. She's insubordinate. She's not going to finish. And he was absolutely right. I was like really pissed off at the time, but, mm. you know, and he had this idea that I was insubordinate, which I, you know, objected to at the time. But maybe there was some truth to that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's I don't right. Know. I mean, I don't feel like I'm saying anything that remarkable or controversial or original. I think the bar is like so low. <laughs> but I absolutely agree that like for people like you and me, it makes more sense to kind of go rogue. You'll make more money, at least in the short run. This is the first time in my life that I'm making a living. Mm. Yeah, that's a really 
I think it's a, it's a really good point. I think a lot of people say like, oh, it's an unrealistic dream. You're going to build a podcast and make money that way or some associated type of internet project and make money that way. And it's like, yeah, the, your chances are never guaranteed. It's always, it's always hard, right? To build anything that's, that's significant and successful and makes money. That's always, that's always a challenge. But I really do think statistically, your chances are actually better than trying to become a professor and have like a stable, happy lifestyle as a professor. Because there's like, uh, there's just, are only so many seats available for that. And there's tons and tons of people trying to get those seats. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, before this quarantine happened, I ran into a, a colleague of mine on the train who was in my class, in my PhD class. And she informed me that the only person who ended up getting tenure in our co- in our whole cohort was um, this kind of very by the book, uh, like socially conscious woman who I remember would insert like a Freud or Nietzsche quote into all of her writings about like, you know, 19th century decorative furniture. And, you know, of course this is the person who gets tenured at the end of the day, which is, you know, no, no disrespect to her. Good for her. But Mm -hmm. there, I I don't think academic academia um, has any room for like, I'm not even talking about like radical or iconoclastic voices. I'm talking about for anybody who rocks the boat in the most minor of ways. Right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Now you said just a minute ago that this is the first time in your life that you're really making a living. I think this would be interesting to kind of break down for people because I'm sure a critique you hear a lot, like anyone who's doing anything, even half successful on the internet, people call you a grifter. People say like, you know, Oh, you're making so much money. You know, you get these types of critiques. But I bet in your case, since you live in Manhattan, you know, even though Red Scare is doing quite well, and you and you two are making a decent chunk of change, it's not like you're super rich or something, right? Like, help help kind of break this down for people. Like, how would you describe kind of like your socioeconomic uh, success from Red Scare? Um, I, I mean, I would say that Dasha and I are now comfortably middle class. Our parents are proud of us. Uh, I think we both have this like immigrant sensibility where it was embarrassing and shameful to be poor. And, you know, when I was growing up, we were poor. We weren't like in section eight housing, but my, I think there's this myth that my father, because he has a Wikipedia page and like a New York times obit that that translates to like me growing up in a McMansion. That was simply not the case. Um, We lived in a, small apartment medium-sized apartment but you know not big like about the size of the apartment that I'm sitting in right now um one car my mom my sister and I walked everywhere when I was a little kid we all you know it was a very modest upbringing and it was an upbringing that was like crucially you know it's I don't know that I want to talk about this any more in depth because it's like the kind of I have black friends excuse okay but we grew up in a neighborhood that was full of working class people and recently transplanted immigrants. So I have, you know, a automatic kind of, let's say desire to not be poor. Right. And I spent so much of my life kind of scrabbling and living like, you know, I was working to live in the city as a PhD student. I was working basically like menial, like service jobs. So it's nice. I mean, like, I don't want to go back. It's nice to be in a position where I can like pay my bills, pay my rent. I can like be on the lease of an apartment. And I hope that doesn't, yeah. 
Well, this is kind of what I'm trying to break down for people because I think a lot of people don't appreciate this. People look at someone with a moderately successful podcast and they're like, and they look at your Patreon numbers and this and that. And it's like, um, it's, it's easy for someone who's like really struggling to look at someone like you, Anna, and, and be like, oh, you're, you're, you're super rich now. You're like super mega famous and, and rich. And I think in, in many ways, it's like, it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting symptomatically because you're, it's like you just said you're pretty much just middle class now. Like you're successful, you're you're happy with what with what you've accomplished. Um, but it's not like you know you're 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 not like super wealthy. You know, especially in Manhattan, you're probably you're just you're just middle class, right? Um, and I think it's kind of weird how it's like so many people are in our generation are doing worse than their parents, which mm-hmm. historically is not expected, right? The whole the whole kind of uh, 20th century American. Uh, mentality, the whole 20th century bargain for, for American politics is that every generation gets to expect a life that's slightly better than their parents. Uh, but so many people in our generation are, are have, don't have that. Uh, they, they've been screwed out of that. And so it's like, you've really just, you've really just achieved that. And now it's like, to many people, it's like, it, 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 you're called a grifter or like you're criticized for, for being high and mighty. It, it's very perverse, isn't it? Something about this is perverse. Well, I think, I think grifter is a compliment. For the most part, I think like you know, some people who are called grifters absolutely does deserve the label and are like lying, cheating pieces of shit. Uh, I think grifter means anybody who's extra institutional who finds success outside of the normative institutional structures um, when it's used as like an all-purpose insult. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to dispute whether I'm a grifter or not. You know, as Vanessa Place said, my critics are always right. To some people, I'm a grifter. Sure, like, fair enough. Uh, in my mind, I'm not gaming anybody. I'm not selling anyone any like lies or I'm not cheating or stealing from anybody. Um, but yeah, in my mind, on some level, it's a compliment. The other thing that that you know Americans have like a very poor understanding of class. They don't see or they're conf- they confuse kind of social and economic class on some level. The reality for immigrants it was not the same for let's say uh, academic families that were native born right for example um mm. right i had some other kind of a thing to say but i don't remember now oh that's cool no worries i'm kind of curious if you don't mind me asking if, if i'm not prying i'm kind of curious what's anna k's kind of like longer term game plan like are you hoping to grow the podcast as a, as a much longer term thing are you more thinking about kind of parlaying it into other things like a big book or other, or are you thinking about like, what's your, what's your even longer term, bigger visions? Would you be willing to share? Like what, what's, what's like the, what's Anna's empire, like 20 years forward looking at ideally? I don't don't know. I live day by day. I mean, uh, I would like to continue. I like doing the podcast. Uh, This is like one of my favorite things to do. I don't really have like a concrete plan. I'm like very bad at planning, you know? (laughs) Um, I was thinking the other day because I have so much, uh, kind of like writer's block and resist like psychological resistance to actually writing. I'm so deathly afraid of it that I thought like, fuck it. Why not just run for office? I saw Nikhil Saval of N plus one was running for office. No, I mean, somebody has to do it. Do I want to do it? No, I want to lounge around in a bikini and get a crispy tan and be like an Instagram thought, but somebody really has to do it. Now you say that you want to be, you ideally want to be a thought, but I'm sure if you decided to actually be a thought, you can make bank doing that. Have you thought about that? And you said it yourself. I wouldn't suggest it, but yeah, you said I can't. it. I'm way too old. 
uh, think? way too pol- yeah you mean for, it, for you're too old for you to do it comfortably or you're too old to do it successfully uh the, the latter i doubt that i think you could be a thought I'm if you wanted May to musk also i sort of just assumed that you were above being a thought i'm not above anything I mean, well, I don't think anybody is. I'm, I have I have certain principles and convictions, right? But I prefer to keep them. You know, you don't want to ever reveal those to people mm. because they can be used against you. I see. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, interesting. So it's cool that you you really don't plan that much for the future. I think it's kind of, I think for a certain type of like ambitious, focused young adult man such as myself, that's actually really refreshing to hear because I think there's there's especially people like me, it's kind of like, I'm like, I, I try to plan everything. I'm like very aggressive about having plans and having strategies and, and, and it can be really oppressive, honestly, to sometimes get like trapped in that mentality. So it's cool to see someone like you kind of doing your thing and being successful and you're not really thinking too hard about it. I think like you have to not apply a zero sum game mentality to it. This is like my problem, right? Like when people are angry at like me or Dasha or some other bitch on the internet, I think like you too can do this or anything else if you just, you know, take up the space. Just right. go for it. Nobody's holding you back. Hell yeah. I like that. I'm curious. Do you think that being in New York City is really worth it in terms of uh, launching a successful cultural project? Like, do you think you really do get a, a multiplier from being in New York City or is that overhyped? I think it's vastly overhyped. Yeah. Um, I, if you are trying to launch some sort of project, whether it's like a, a public intellectual platform or like a, a podcasting entertainment platform, whatever, I don't think it matters uh, where you are. Like the party will come to you. The The New York thing, I suppose you it confers upon you certain like ne- networking or social connections. But I don't really think those are beneficial in the long run because you have to remember again, all these people, they may be nice. They may be your friends, but they're also tethered to institutional interests. Mm. They can help you, you know, in terms of like finding a book agent or uh, placing an article in a respectable publication. But I don't think that that's even, you know, necessary any longer. Right. I completely agree, but that's, but I wasn't sure. And that's why I wanted to ask that to someone like you, because I mean, my sense is, so would you agree that like, if, if you and Dasha launched Red Scare from like Omaha, Nebraska, you'd have the same, you could, you could very well have the same results. You think? Well, I think, I don't know about that. When we started, Dasha just moved from LA and I was, I've been here for like over 10 years, but um, I think part part of our initial momentum came from us being like an art ho like art world podcast so all the art people were listening to us and okay interesting kind of snowballed into i mean we have a very diverse audience mm. okay interesting so on the one hand you think new york city is overhyped but on the other hand it maybe did play a crucial role in in your particular path yeah i mean possibly but i think like certainly if you you know that was our particular uh, kind of direction or, or trajectory. Right. But I think like, if that's not, if you're not interested in that and that's not where you come from, then you can totally be successful anywhere else. Right. So there's a question here that says, uh, Anna and Dasha said the pod is basically a sexless marriage. How do, how do they think it's going to end? I don't want to get pessimistic and, and talk to you about how your podcast is going to end. I hope it never ends. I hope it's, it's eternally happy and successful, but maybe a, like a lighter form of that question, since people are curious is like, do you and Dasha ever get in? Have, have you ever had like a serious fight or a serious conflict that like? Kind no, of, no, 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 no. It's our, our like 
relationship is like very compatible. It's more compatible than any of my like romantic relationships. Somebody did our chart. We're actually like the exact, we're like yin and yang. Interesting. Yeah. That's nice. That's good. So you won't have some kind of like, uh, like this recent call like her daddy. Call me daddy uh, fiasco. No, <laughs> I don't see that happening. I think have like, you ever been appro- likely. Have Sorry? you ever been approached by big wigs and people like trying to buy you up or put you on a network or something? No, mm. no, no. We've been approached by like very early on. People asked us um, uh, some, uh, uh, a kind of conservative imprint of Simon and Schuster got in touch with us and asked us if we'd like to write a book like a Chapo style guide to revolution, but like, you know, red scare guide to sucking dick and like <laughs> online yeah. shopping. And uh, we declined at the time. I mean, I thought it was a bad idea because we hadn't like earned our stripes. And I think she felt the same way. Interesting. But now it sounds like maybe you'd be more open to something like that. Yeah. I, I think like it, generally speaking, sure. I don't, I like being like independent. I'm not interested in like running ads or like, um, tying myself to any like streaming platform or anything at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So well, we should talk maybe a little bit about what's going on in the world right now. Cause there's some crazy shit happening. Right. And you did mention yeah. before riots, there are riots all over the nation. I think we'd be remiss to not mention it and discuss it somewhat. Yeah. Want to kick things off with a quick take? Um, yeah, I mean, like, as I said on, on Twitter, I'm pretty sure that the future is going to be AOC running against Baron Trump and losing. I think that's where we're, we're headed. Interesting. In that direction, yeah. Interesting. Do you think the riots portend uh, a, a period of extended c- civil conflict and civil unrest? Or is this just a, a, a blip? I think that um, probably it's going to be something cyclical where it dies down and, and, and uh, flares back up. Uh, first of all, everybody seems to have collective amnesia that, you know, coronavirus was happening just a few days ago and we were in this quarantine. It's going to be interesting to see if, if people go back into quarantine. Mm. If the, right. once the incidents start rising, I mean, they, they started, they eased restrictions in Berlin, right. And the infection rates have gone up. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So uh, you talked with Steve Bannon not too long ago, I believe. Uh, do you think that the Bannon, yeah. the Bannon kind of vector of American politics, do you think that's that's here to stay and we're going to be seeing more of it? That's going to define. Is that what you meant by kind of the Trump wing that you're going to see more of moving forward? Or what's your read on that? I mean, my read on this whole um, on these protests, like broadly speaking, is that they're uh, basically an ideological vacuum and anybody can come and, and graft their narrative or ideology onto it, whatever ideology corresponds best to their like personality disorder, you know, um, I think what's going on very vaguely speaking, it's hard to say, like, for example, you know, I saw Lil Wayne talking to fat Joe on his Instagram show in much a similar setup. Uh, and he almost sounded like Adolf Reed jr. He was like, well, you know, we have to look at specific case by case basis. I know he has this kind of like chip on his shoulder because he was saved by a cop when he shot himself as a right, a white cop, right. Early missed his heart. Yeah. Um, but he's right. He says, you know, you, you, you can't talk about this in broadly racialized lines without looking at specific scenarios, issues, and like the grievance and outrage of black America is absolutely real. What happened to George Floyd was straight up murder. Nobody disputes that. Interestingly, nobody from Donald's from Donald Rumsfeld to like the CEO of Wells Fargo to the CEO of Nabisco were all in line. Right. But 
I think like what's going on right now is the Democratic Party organ is trying to hijack the racial grievance, hijack and, and divide poor whites and poor blacks against uh, across racialized lines. So they mm-hmm. don't have to uh, address the class disparity. Right. And also the court, the corporate adoption of of the woke stuff is just like so hilarious and, and kind of just disgusting. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's so visible. Yeah. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people killed by cops in the United States are poor people. They're poor. A lot of them are black. A lot of them are white or Hispanic or Native American. Um, the, you know, cops know they code for class or they know how to code for like class markers. They know how to identify a poor person, you know, but the, the problem I think is like, yeah, the, the corporations jumping on board is like, especially egregious and disgusting. And I think it's like, you know, this is stuff that we were laughing at in 2016. When like, have you, have you ever been in a riot? Have I ever been in a riot? I mean, I walked into one <laughs> <laughs> just a few days ago. But were you ever involved in protests like no. back before, like the woke stuff? No, no. I mean, I think I'm a Russian person. I think like I have a very uh, pessimistic and gl- rather glum view of protesting. Right. And by the way, I, you know, I completely sympathize. I'm, uh, am, you know, in support of the people protesting, obviously. Right. Yeah, sure. No, you made that clear. And 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 same. I mean, I think here our, our politics are mostly the same, so we don't even have to uh, go over them too much. But it's more interesting, I think, to talk about what to do. Like, personally, I'm kind of interested, you know, it's a difficult situation to be in, right, where you feel like there are serious injustices that are a real problem. But all of the public discourse about those injustices is just this, like, totally disingenuous, cringe social justice signaling. And it's like, I feel kind of torn, honestly. I don't even know what my answer is to this. I don't really, I haven't really thought through how to, how to uh, consciously participate or not participate. Um, so I'm kind of curious, how, how do you square that circle? Like when, when the public discourse is so cringe and disingenuous, you almost don't want to say anything. You almost don't want to express uh, any opposition to the injustice because the discourse is so gross. But how do you, how do you process that? And how are you practicing it? I mean, look, me protesting or not protesting is like irrelevant to anything, but I I don't, I don't think it even, you know, I see a lot of people like on Twitter, for example, airing out like individual white girls who did like a BLM makeup tutorial or like uh, told some other white girls how to dress at a protest, like wedge their bodies between protesters, between the black people and the cops. And, you know, that's, stupid and harebrained but it's just like par for the course at this time at this point and i see a lot of people protesting the kind of or or mocking the corporate virtue signaling and that's also like just part and parcel of this kind of weird reality we live in where like neoliberalism literally absorbs and neutralizes its own contradictions i think like the best thing you can do is probably donate and i think you have to get I mean, I'm thinking about this now, like how to get involved politically in a way that's like basically long term and organizational. I'm very uninformed about this. So I have to like look into it and ask my more politically involved friends. But I think that that's like what you the best thing you can do. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even don't the thing is that even donating is kind of dicey because uh, I'm sure you might have noticed like there was one organization that was soliciting fundraising. And then a day later, it was like all the woke people were like, no, don't give to them. They're not the best ones to give to. You're supposed to you're actually supposed to give to this other group. And it's and, and not to mention the fact that like a lot of charities, the sad fact is that they're so wildly inefficient that it's like 90 percent of the donations go to overhead, just like running the organization. So right. it's like even even donating, which I agree. Uh, generally, I'm kind of like that. That's a no brainer. That's a, that that can't do any harm, right? That, that that that's a concrete way to help. Even then, there's like these layers of deceit and and uncertainty about whether whether that's even uh, worthwhile. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm very kind of like skeptical, even of the donation stuff. I think to say that out loud, you sound like a buzzkill and a pessimist. And I don't mm. want to like dissuade people from, you know, airing their legitimate grievances, their legitimate outrage. Um, I think like, you know, w- what's going on, though, is deeply disturbing because basically you have Democratic Party officials and so called health experts going back going against their orders, their shelter-in-place orders that they had issued just a few days ago. And now they're saying, well, you know, we want you to wear the mask and socially distance, but yeah, go out and protest. And I'm very angry at the the leadership, the authorities, because what they're doing is they're uh, offloading risk, liability, accountability onto the public. And I was thinking about this. People were saying, well, how could they do like a total about-face and go from telling us to stay home and flatten the curve to telling us to turn out and while you're at it, like donate to this bail fund. Well, there's nothing hypocritical about this. It's it's all in line with their strategy of again making the republic or making the public responsible. Mm. It's it's you know the same thing. And how do we hold those people accountable? Right. It's a really good question. I mean, my to be perfectly honest, you know, I'm more and more of the view that all of mainstream public politics and culture and discourse is just such an insanely idiotic clown world. And, and the clown world aspects seem to be multiplying and, and, and accelerating to, to the point that I actually think increasingly the, the correct attitude for educated, uh, intelligent people who are trying to make sense of the world and trying to do their own creative, intelligent projects. I, I think increasingly the, the correct choice is to simply stop paying attention altogether to pretty yeah, much like absolutely. all contemporary public discourse. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you have to. And I think it's totally uh, warranted to just like disappear for a little bit, like deactivate your social media, disappear, do some reading, whatever. Um, I'm real. I'm very big. Like, you know, look, at the end of the day, for somebody who gets called a cynic and a nihilist and a grifter all the time, I'm seriously a bleeding heart, social justice liberal. That's what I am at the end mm. of the day. Like, I believe in social justice. I believe in like, racial and gender equality in a very like straightforward manner i refuse to talk down to people about the stakes the terms of their disenfranchisement and i'm with adolf reed on this 100 percent um and, and cornell west uh two preeminent black intellectuals who are also often called clowns and grifters and they're right they their point is that rach, racial inequality racial disparity is real that any problems or any programs that are uh, kind of aiming to solve it are, are, are well-intentioned, but you have to solve the, the problem of economic inequality in tandem. They're not mutually exclusive, right? A lot of I people agree. have also called people 
um, like me or Amber Frost or Amy Trieslava, class reductionists. I don't think we're class reductionists. We're not claiming that racism doesn't exist and, and the only fault line is along class, but they, those things are intersectional. It's an intersectional problem. Right on. Yeah, that's definitely uh, compelling to me. I, I generally agree with a perspective like that. I kind of put in my mind, I put you and Dasha on one side with someone like Emma Goldman. Do you, have you ever thought about that? Do you do you identify at all with Emma Goldman? <laughs> no, no, I, I've never thought about it. You never no, thought about it, or you actively deny the uh, comparison. I've literally never thought about it. it well, for for people mind. who are listening who maybe don't know about Emma Goldman, I, Emma Goldman is someone I've always actually really looked up to. To me, she's a good example of a, of what the radical left should be. Of mm-hmm. it should be a kind of insurrectionary radical free speech type of project that that's essentially what radical left culture means to me to the the degree that I still, I still pretty much do identify with the radical left, but a very specific tradition of the radical left, which is nowhere to be seen today. Emma Mm -hmm. Goldman is kind of a representative of that. So the reason I mentioned her in in connection to you two is because uh, she's, she's Russian Jew and she comes over to America in the early 20th (laughs) century and she's an anarchist, right? She's a really, really militant anarchist. She's, she's a kind of, you know, uh, she has bleeding heart social values like you just described uh, but she comes over to America, not like, you know, uh, trying to organize like some sort of uh, social justice uh, project in this kind of like meek uh, victim like way. But she comes over like spitting fire, like speaking really, truly revolutionary discourse and is constantly being banned. She, she's constantly going into hiding. Uh, she was pretty much a free speech radical. And, and to me, the proper understanding of the true revolutionary left, a kind of insurrectionary revolutionary left. Uh, trying to overthrow the the contemporary order to bring in you know truth and justice and equality should look something more like Emma Goldman, which actually I think looks more like you and Dasha than anything you can find uh, available in contemporary politics today. Basically means speaking the truth as loudly as possible, not really caring what the what the ramifications or consequences are. Just basically speaking the truth so loudly and militantly until things start to break up and things start to change. That, that's essentially what Emma Goldman represents in my mind and, and in that moment in history. And that's kind of the vision of radical left politics that I remain interested in. And I see you and Dasha as kind of contemporary representatives of it. I mean, fair enough. I'll have to look into this uh, comparison. It's better than Ayn Rand, which I get a lot because we have quite a few physical similarities. It's like nothing to do with this woman. Um, uh, But yeah, I think like people have to be willing to have conversations. You have to be willing to talk to, I'm open to talking to anyone, right? And hearing them out. Right, for sure. you know, I'm not actually like, I'm not, I'm not a contrarian. It's, it's not like that. I see things, you know, I see people saying one thing and I have to take kind of the opposite tack or whatever. I'm probably mangling the meaning of contrarian now, but I literally see things from all sides. I see where everyone, you know, what everyone is getting at and you have to be willing to like talk to everybody. And, you know, I, I do this in maybe a rather confrontational condescending way that the, pisses some people off but you know I simply refuse to do this kind of like liberal piety dance and talk down to people and this is how my mother talked to me if you did something wrong in the house it was like are you mentally ill are you stupid it was very no nonsense and 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 very crippling to the ego you know like she dismantled my ego and my spirit way before I came out into the adult world which prepared me for it right and a lot of a lot of American people of our generation grew up with the exact opposite yeah, that, that kind of helicopter parenting. So I think it does. It does explain a lot. 
And I mean, I all for what it's worth, what you're saying resonates with me also because I, I grew up I grew up poor also and in New Jersey also. So mm-hmm. I have a similar kind of um, pretty hard scrabble kind of working class uh, East Coast kind of uh, way of being raised. I'm sure for me it was slightly different as as a young man, but uh, you know, for, for the the kind of male version of what you're describing for me was uh, hanging out with my buddies and everyone like ruthlessly making fun of each other. You know, yeah. so th- it's like, that's one of the reasons why like retard actually has a, a kind of sentimental value to me. Cause it's like me all too. my buddies and I used to call each other retard growing up. And it's like, who the fuck are you to tell me? I can't use this wonderful word. That was a part of my life. And that actually means something to me. <laughs> yeah. That actually uh, retarded people don't care if you use by the way, but we, <laughs> I don't know that we should have that conversation. Um, Fair point. But yeah, so, I mean, sorry, right. go ahead. No, no. Um, I was going to ask you. I was curious while we're talking about these different vectors of cultural politics and how the future unfolds, I was curious, were you relatively impressed by Steve Bannon in the flesh or were you relatively unimpressed? I didn't see him in the flesh. Oh, you did that remotely. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. We didn't, we didn't hop into bed together or anything. <laughs> there was like a, yeah. Okay. Well, nonetheless, in your conversation with him, your opportunity to have one-on-one with him, were you relatively impressed or unimpressed? I mean, look, I, I'm impressed with his uh, head of hair, his great head of hair. I'm impressed with his style. I, I think he gets unfairly mocked for doing that layering thing with the barber jacket. Um, I'm, you know, fairly impressed. I'm impressed. You have to, you have to give this guy credit. He's had a very interesting life that very few people have had. He he was in the army. He worked in Hollywood. He became like. He worked in like weird Chinese gaming cryptocurrency, from what I understand. He was then a, a strategist for the Trump campaign. This is a guy who's who's led a, a much a, a far more kind of like interesting and weird life than the vast majority of people, and he's kind of like an autodidact. I think that the problem with Steve Bannon, and I think I would say this to his face, is that his intellect has a kind of limitation that he's unwilling to confront, right? Because he's very good at like uh, finding commonality with like the radical left, let's say, but he refuses to go beyond this kind of like a populist dog whistle strategy that 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 uh, he's developed. So either like he knows something we don't or he's kind of intellectually limited in that capacity. And I think that when he, when you start, when he starts running up against that, um, you know, inability to reckon with something like uh, universal health care or something like that. I think that's Marty Bannon speaking, his father. You know, he talks a lot about his father in interviews and stuff like that. Um, and how his father was like a working class guy who worked for like the cable company or something. Uh, and I think, that you know, it's, it's a very kind of understandable working class Irish kind of bigoted worldview that... Steve has internalized in a way just as I've internalized my mom's like negative self-talk or whatever Mm. pessimistic view of the world I think that he would be a much more impressive thinker if he could go beyond his own orthodoxies right right that's an interesting diagnosis do you think that there is going to be a kind of convergence between the what we might call the anti-woke left and kind of the the, let's say the the kind of Bernie faction that's uh, way less interested in the the race and gender stuff, and the Bannon faction that essentially wants a kind of American for America first 
kind of economic policies. Do, do you think that that's going to converge moving forward? Or do you think that's just an ideological nut that's impossible to crack or, or put together? Um, I don't think the Bannon people want an America first economic policy. That's like a canard. They don't. Oh, you think? They, okay. I think there are neoliberals at the end of the day. Okay. And I think they're, they're very savvy in um, pretending to be kind of uh, hardline nationalists because it works for them. Okay, well, uh, maybe let's separate. Let's separate the. Uh, uh, go on, you can finish your thought. Looks and like you're I think the term. I think the terminology is wrong. I think we just like dispense dispense with the the binary of left and right. It's very clear that that binary no longer exists in mainstream establishment American politics. Um, it, the the disagreement between Democrats and Republicans is primarily an aesthetic and methodological one, not an ideological one. They mm. belong to the same kleptocrat party. It's one big party, right? Um, the the kind of uh, situation on the political fringe mirrors that. There are there are people um, on the radical left and on the radical right who are dipshits and retards, and then there are people that who are in kind of the center who are not centrists, maybe, but who uh, reject the ideological assumptions of both camps. Sure. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. And that, that makes sense as far as it goes. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of the underlying public opinion of the American electorate and what people in America actually want, because in some ways, obviously it's manipulated and, and politicians uh, are not always obviously true to, to what people want. But, you know, we do have an electoral system where what people want does play some sort of role. And even yeah. if it's a complicated role. So I was just kind of curious if you, how you see that playing out, because from my perspective, it does look to me like over the next 10 years, 20 years, maybe it's going to be, I think we're kind of living through in a realignment at the moment, in fact, where like, you know, if you look at someone like Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson increasingly kind of sounds like a kind of like anti-woke leftist in certain ways, you yeah, know what he I mean? Does, yeah. And I think this is very confusing right now. It's, it's hard to kind of put things in their proper place, but I think that's because things are shifting in a weird way. And so my read on it is that in 10 years, 20 years, whatever, it's going to be like, there's going to be a kind of uh, America first kind of socialist type of block representing one, one, the, one of the big, you know, uh, kind of sectors of, of American uh, electorate. And it's going to be people who are currently on the right, uh-huh. people like Tucker Carlson or people like Steve Bannon, but also the anti-woke people who are currently on the left. So like in 10 or 20 years, it's like, Tucker Carlson is in one camp with like Angela Nagel and they're basically mm-hmm. voting for Bernie. And uh-huh. then in the other camp, it's like a globalist, uh, hyper multiracial, hyper, hyper multi-gender kind of like woke internationalist camp. Yeah. It's going like, to be like which, the Wells Fargo donut plant caucus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I feel like these two vectors are going to accelerate and clarify. And, uh, so, so in this model, if I'm right, I don't know, I'm obviously just speculating, but in this model, like over time, people like you and I are going to increasingly, um, like, like the, 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 the cultural politics are going to try to kind of pull people like you and I onto one side or the other. Yeah. And I'm just kind of, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think this is going to be another one of those cases where, um, the composition changes, but the distribution stays the same. So it's going to be a similar kind of like left, right binary. I hope that doesn't go that way. I think what dawned on me actually is, um, maybe for the left to win, I mean, they have to politically organize, they have to not be allergic to kind of power, but 
they have to dispense with the leftist socialist lingo on some level. They have to rebrand essentially. And why not? You remember that AOC documentary that came out, you know, maybe a year ago, a few months ago, that was uh, profiled a bunch of upstart female candidates, all of them lost except for AOC, which, you know, we wonder why. Um, and there was one representative from Mexico, I think, or from, sorry, um, Texas, who was Mexican, or maybe she was from California. And she said, like, you know, people call me a Marxist and a socialist all the time. I don't know what that means. I just want people to kind of have the same economic baseline. I believe in redistribution, like these sort of things, like, but she didn't want to overtly brand herself as anything, I think, because she just didn't have the kind of knowledge or background or whatever. Mm. And like, you know, one way to get people on board is basically to not use that language, because I think that language is very like negatively connoted in American contemporary life, like both Democrats and Republicans hate socialism, right? Overtly. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting. That's Mm. like one thing that, that, that I'm thinking about that it has to be kind of rebranded on some level uh, and not under the auspices of the democratic party, because I think Cornell West is absolutely right. The the system cannot be reformed. Mm. Mm. And like, the the other thing I was thinking about, you know, you, um, I read a really good piece by R.S. Racinos in Unheard. I don't know if you've came across this piece. I'm not sure. It's, it's um, it's a really good piece. It's about um, um, how COVID has essentially shown that America is a failed state, and in it, he basically looks forward and um, let's say he 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 um predicts that that America will look more and more like a, a Latin American economy. Hmm. That's that's like kind of militarized autocratic depends on tourism, that sort of thing. And but and then he looks somewhat backward and says, well the situation now mirrors in a weird way the Soviet Union, which is something that Dasha and I have been saying. I've never heard anybody else say this. Hmm. And I'm very happy that somebody did in a far more like articulate and well-informed way than we did. Um, and he talks about, you know, we have we have now a, a presidential race, which is down to two gerontocrats, right? Trump and Biden. Um, the situation, I can even read the quote. I'll pull it up because I, it's probably, I probably can't paraphrase it adequately. Sure. But um, he, he talks about, um, you know, we have a situation where two gerontocrats of dubious mental acuity are pitted against each other. Um, the regime is like collapsing under its own absurdities. Um, the, we have like a weird inverse because, um, the economy is much larger than the Soviet unions, right? Um, Mm -hmm. the empire is still intact. So, and so, um, but the, the situation on the ground, he says, reminds him in a way of the Soviet union, um, the kind of epidemics of of drug deaths, of deaths, of deaths of despair, the collapse of the middle class, um, the worsening health outcomes and declining life expectancies, uh, the capture of the state uh, by rapacious oligarchs. I think a big problem we have in the United States is regulatory capture and, um, you know, these occasional bouts of inter-ethnic violence, which is what we're experiencing right now. Yeah. That's, that's compelling to hear it itemized like that. And I, I agree that the kind of libertarian critique of, of regulatory, of regulatory capture is very real and legitimate. And, and it, and it actually is a real, it's a real impediment to uh, improving the lives of many people in, in the United States. And, and yet there's also 
all of this. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of problems with the kind of technocratic right wing way of thinking also. So like, I, I almost wonder if the solution or, or what we might see more of is a kind of, uh, a kind of front where it's like, uh, anti-regulatory, it's kind of libertarian in, in many ways, uh, but kind of socialist ethically, you know? So like I, I, I could see, I can imagine, uh, you know, people like with, with political profiles such as, such as ours kind of increasingly opting for, you know, basically giving people more freedom to do what, what they want, but then also focusing on creating families and communities that are, ha- have a kind of more communalist and socialist ethic. Is this something yeah. that interests you or no? Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I, I would have to, like, you know, it's, it's hard to see how, what, what shape that would take, like, practically. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to say either way, but I think, like, um, the the idea like the thinking about it in terms of like left and right binaries is is not is no longer useful but at the same time it's very hard to dislodge because this is one of like the chief the chief mythologies of america that we have this kind of functional two-party system right right well that was that was definitely an interesting tour of american politics we just went on i i recognize i don't i think i only booked you for an hour so i don't want to abuse your your time. Uh, so I'll try to wrap this up. I want to, I want to let you carry on with your day. Uh, maybe just one or two more questions if that's okay with you, Anna. Yeah. If, if anybody has stupid questions, I'd be happy to take. Yeah. We, 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 we did due diligence, just had a serious discussion about politics. Now, now we'll switch it up a little bit. Uh, what kind of, what one question we got here is, uh, what's your, what are your favorite drugs? Um, I seriously don't do drugs. Oh, none. No, that's I know I am known as like a Coke head or a ketamine head. I've, I've done ketamine once at, but like a new year's celebration and I didn't particularly love it. Um, cool. Do you have, do you have a, do you have a uh, culturally conservative rant against drug use and how, uh, no, not at all. I'm, the, okay. no, I'm very pro drug. I'm pro pornography. I'm pro all that stuff. Um, I sometimes have done cocaine in the past, not at like, you know, it's funny when people call us cokeheads because we're so low energy. Right. <laughs> I'll I'll tell you the the true the true reason I've ever done coke is because usually it's at a party and I'm drinking and the the alcohol puts me to sleep and I have to get back to normal social levels. It's not to like get high or wild out or anything. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I I wasn't sure what to expect for an answer on that front. Interesting. And here's an interesting question uh that's a little bit more lighthearted also. Uh then this person really wanted me to ask this question is from CA. They're they're begging me to ask this question, so okay. I, I I said I'll get it on there. The question is how can someone be both intelligent and hot? And and I'll kind of quote them. They say, the more I read, the less I care about my looks and socializing. My boyfriend mm-hmm. made a comment about how I no longer make any effort on looking cute. And I remember in an episode of Red Scare, you guys said that that's why men leave women because they start wearing sweatpants all day and men feel the need to go looking after a better looking woman. So how can you be both intelligent and still care about being hot? Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not going to get, I'm not even going to give a satisfactory answer. I think you just have to like force yourself to exercise and wear a G string every once in a while. And then, you know, hit the books. It's hard. I I'm obviously I'm a man. So your mileage might vary on this, but I have, I have a fairly concrete suggestion for this. If the person wants to know my opinion, they didn't ask for mine, but I'll give it anyway. Uh, one little life hack, if you will, to solve this problem is, if you make videos of any kind or you do anything that's video based that's around your intellectual interests 
Well, that's going to keep you, that's, that's going to keep you accountable to looking at least half decent, right? That's going to set a floor on, on how much you can really let yourself go. Because if you're recording video that's related to your intellectual passions, it's just going to basically force you to uh, look decent because you're going to be seeing yourself. uh, You're going to be seeing your reflection uh, regularly and you're going to be incentivized and held accountable to uh, looking half decent. So that's, that's, I mean, cause I'm, you know, I'm a married man. I'm not like, uh, I'm not trying, I'm not like trying to fuck women. So I really have no incentive to look very good. Um, and, And if I wasn't, if I wasn't actively doing video based stuff on the internet, I would probably let myself go much worse than, than I have. Uh, and that's because people are going to see me. So I just do some basic due diligence to yeah, look, you have to look to, half yeah. decent. Yeah. I mean, I get pommeled all the time on the internet for looking like a vampire, or like a, a, I don't know, some sort of ghoul or like Masha Gessen or whatever. So, uh, you know, I have to constantly defy their expectations. And also like my boyfriend said he'd cheat on me if I didn't look attractive. So I have to like, uh, whatever his baseline is, right. It's not for me to say, but as long as he thinks I'm satisfactory, but I'm like living in my bunker right now. Right. Like, uh, one of those terrorists that they dig out in like a covert U S operations and like reading articles on BLM. Right. Uh, I have no desire to like even get dressed or exercise, but I force myself. The payoff is real. Yeah, the payoff is real. So I guess the other life hack here is get a boyfriend or girlfriend who yeah. uh, is going to punish you if you start looking bad. Yeah, get an yeah. accountability partner. There you go. Uh, oh, speaking about accountability real quick, I want to tell you, Anna, that if you're having a hard time getting your book writing done, I actually, every Tuesday morning, uh, I do a little group where I invite friends from the internet to work with me. Uh, uh-huh. It's just, a, it's it's a little like thing we do just to get extra work done on. And we're basically all writing books or writing blogs or whatever. So you're more than welcome, honestly. And people swear that it's really useful. Uh, okay. If you want to just book out, we do, we do, we meet for four hours at a time and we just work on our books and blogs and stuff like that. So it's actually a, it's actually a really honestly useful way to meet? get a bunch of work done. You meet over zoom. Yeah. We meet on a zoom call just like this every Tuesday morning. You're more than welcome to come. Okay. That sounds fun. I've already, since I've already forked over my data to this shadowy Chinese company, you know, what do I have to lose? Um, but what do you guys, what's the, what's the praxis? Like, what do you do? It's super simple. All we do is we work for 45 minutes and we turn our mics off and then we take a break for 10 minutes and then we do that four times in a row. So for, so it adds up to about four hours and it's just a little, it's just a weird little way to basically force yourself to be more productive because when you, when you commit to showing up and just sitting at the table for four hours and every, when you look at on your zoom call and you look at like 10 other people, 20 other people who are silently working on their work, uh, you just feel like an asshole if you uh, don't work on your work. So it's just, a, it's just a nice little way to force yourself to be productive. Okay. You're more than welcome. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll send you a link later. It's up to you. No pressure, obviously. Just throwing that out there. It's, it's honestly pretty useful. So that's why I mentioned it. So, um, all right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. This was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. There were some questions people asked that we didn't uh, necessarily get to, but I think we got we got to a lot of the big ones yeah. that people suggested, which I found most interesting. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you uh, came on to talk with me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Can I just, can I just leave the call now? How does it work? Um, yeah, you're, you're more than welcome to leave now. You can just shut it down and uh, all will be fine. Okay, well, have a good one. It was a pleasure talking to you and I'll see you in hell. <laughs> Thanks again, Anna. Take it easy. Later. Bye.
<laughs> you're just going to sit there. Cool. Well, I'll do the little outro then. You you hang. It's just uh, leaving the meeting. No problem. It's yeah. cool. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thanks for coming out. I hope you enjoyed that. This is the Other Life Podcast. Uh, go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I uh, do tons of conversations just like this and some other weird stuff. Uh, yeah. So um, actually what I just mentioned to Anna, I, I'm doing these work sessions on Tuesday. So if you're working on some interesting intellectual work and you want to come out, it's an open thing. I, I tweet about it. So you shouldn't be too hard to find a link, a link or I'll throw, I'll throw a link in the description below. And uh, yeah, I do a bunch of other stuff like this and uh, I'm just grateful for you all coming out. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thanks for all the good questions. They were honestly pretty interesting and it, it's, it's always uh, much easier to do a podcast when people are throwing out good questions. So I appreciate that. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to share. Uh, well, I'm doing an online course with the philosopher Nina Power, my friend and colleague. Uh, she's a British philosopher and she's super cool. She's super smart. We're doing a course on George Bataille, the French philosopher. So that's going to be launching in July. Uh, so I'm trying to start to get the word out on that. Uh, if you want to see the syllabus, it's actually a pretty dope little ebook. Uh, it's much more than a syllabus. You can um, get that also. You just have to, um, I'll put a link in that. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the description below. Otherwise, um, yeah, I think, I think we're all done here. Thank you all for coming out. Other Life Podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. See you later, folks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.